0: All right, thank you to all of those who submitted questions that we'll talk about tonight. Uh, Thank you also in advance to Delaney, who will have our in-house microphone to walk around to everyone if you have comments or questions that you'd like to share as we're going through these questions. Um, Had one submitted right before uh, our study tonight and also one came via text. So I think we have five or six questions to answer tonight, so we'll just Dive right in. Here's question number one. Is it wrong or sinful for a Christian to own a business that is not sinful or illegal but could lead customers to sin? For example, alcohol in and of itself is not sinful but when people consume a lot of alcohol, drunkenness is certainly a sin as God says in his word and it can lead to sinful actions. So would it be sinful for a Christian to own a liquor store or even a grocery store that could lead to that kind of abuse that sells alcohol? All right, that's a loaded question. There's a lot there but it's a good question because I I can see where a Christian might have some conscience, uh, be conscience-stricken over something that could happen. So thoughts, anybody have thoughts about that question? Have you thought about that before? You have some really solidified answer to something like that? Put us all at ease? Art has a comment, so Delaney, if you don't mind. What do you think, Art? I think the grocery store would be safer. The, uh, the bar or a liquor store would be more dangerous. Maybe a liquor store would be better than a bar. I think the worst would be the bar. Okay, uh, and, all right. So. And one last thing I want to say is that you uh, have to be led by God whatever you decide, and uh, uh, God will help you uh, wisely decide what to do, whether you should own one of those. Okay, all right, that God, God leads us in, in the life that he wants us to live. I, I, I can see that there might be more, I mean, more temptation in one place than another, maybe, uh, but I think we have to get to the heart of the matter, right? Is it, is it sinful to own or to run a bar, a liquor store, a grocery store that sells things that, I mean, let's be honest, gummy worms can be abused, right? So, I mean, if I own a grocery store, you know, does that mean that, no, gummy worms can't be abused? I think they probably can be. I don't know. Maybe I'm partial to this question because can I tell you a little, well, it's not a secret, my grandfather owned a liquor store for many years and my uncle ran it for a few years as well. I don't remember how many, but it was, it was quite a few years they ran, uh, ran a liquor store. My grandpa was a Christian. My uncle is a Christian. Um, I don't think they did it thinking, you know what, I can't wait to sell to people to get them in as much trouble as they can possibly get into. Right? And, and I think that's where you have to start. right? Is the use of alcohol sinful in and of itself? It is not right? Jesus gave the disciples, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, wine. Uh, in Jesus' day, wine was kind of a staple, right, that people used with their meals. And so you have to say that the consumption of alcohol in and of itself is not wrong. Is there any question that people can abuse those kind of things? There obviously is no question that that happens as well. The best thing I could think of as I thought about this question was uh, a event from the life of John the Baptist that's recorded in Luke chapter 3. And as John the Baptist was preaching repentance to the crowds that came to follow him, there were people that asked him some pretty specific questions about what they should do. Let me just share a little bit of Luke chapter 3 with you. Uh, Starting, I'll start in verse 10. John has just gotten done saying that we should produce fruits, people should produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Here's what verse 10 says. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? And I'll get there, sorry. He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. I think you could also, you can understand that in John's comments, in Jesus' day, people who served as tax collectors or who were soldiers might have abused those positions. They might have used them in ways that were not God-pleasing, right? But notice what John doesn't say. Stop being a tax collector. He doesn't say, stop being a soldier. He says, use that profession to God's glory too. I don't know for sure because I don't remember very well. I was pretty young. I remember going to my grandpa's store. I remember using a feather duster to dust the bottles for him. He taught me some good lessons about, you know, when you get paid to do a job that you can't, you know, he he also sold little bottles of, I think it was called Ting soda. And probably while I was there working and dusting bottles, I drank five or six of them. And so he said I drank up my pay for the day, you know, because I, I used too much of the soda that was there. But I think my grandfather was very good about knowing his customers, and I think he knew when it was time to say, "You know maybe maybe today is not the right day for you to do that." Uh, I, I think he was careful. I think he got to know them. I think he was very good at speaking about his faith in Jesus too. I think he used it as an opportunity and I can see that as, as doing that. Uh, I, I think you just have to be careful to say owning something that could cause somebody else to sin." Makes you, do, makes, makes you the sinner, right? Anything in this life can be abused. Anything can be taken and used in a way that will not bring honor and glory to God. Um, but when something isn't wrong in and of itself, then what we're talking about, really, do you remember this word? Have you learned about adiaphora? Or the singular is adiaphoron from the Greek. Uh, it has a unique meaning. It simply means uh, an indifferent matter. Okay, something that doesn't matter one way or the other. And it doesn't really mean that as we apply it to God's word. What it means is it's something that's not directly forbidden or commanded by God. You'd have a hard time in the Bible finding something that says you can't own a liquor store, you can't own a grocery store that sells things that could get people in trouble. So it falls into this category that God doesn't speak about. And so while one person might say, I don't think I could in good conscience run a, a tavern or a liquor store, Another Christian might say, "I believe I can do this to God's glory and be a witness to the, to uh, my customers and the people who come in and share God's word with them in that way too." And and I think that for me to judge that or to say it's wrong for that person to do it when when God doesn't judge it one way or the other, I think we're we're getting on, we're on dangerous ground to be the moral police for other people in something that we can't point to a part of the Bible where God says one way or the other. Does that help? Any follow-up anybody wants on, on that question? Okay. If not, I'm going to move on to question number two. This one might go a little bit quicker. The question went like this, do you have a go-to psalm? And then the follow-up, which one and why? And I love this question but I had a hard time coming up with one. So I guess I'm just going to throw it out there. Tell me if you have one. And maybe I'll suggest if you don't, it doesn't have to be a sum, but if you can find a go-to spot in the Bible or a place in the Bible where you're like, if I need something, that's where I go. I bet you some of you have that. Maybe all of you. And if you don't, that's, that's a wonderful thing to do. So, Can we stick to the psalms at first? Because that was the question, where it came from. Anybody have a favorite psalm that you want to share that you're like, yep, this is one I go to often? Psalm 103. Yep, a good one, right? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits as far as the east is from the west. So far, God has removed our transgressions from us. Some great verses in Psalm 103. You got one over there, Natasha? Psalm 139. Ooh, I have that coming up too. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right? As part of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? Yep. Yeah. okay, good. Psalm 23 is a great one, right? The Good Shepherd Psalm. Um, yep, great. Okay, I'm, I'm going to share the one that's been my go-to for the last, uh, I would say, month or so, maybe a little bit more. I love Psalm 42, Because Psalm 42 has a, uh, well, it it really is a struggle that the author is having inside of himself, right? He keeps going back and forth to why why is all this bad stuff happening but I trust in God's unfailing love. And it's like this volley that's happening in his mind. But I love the first verse. As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants or longs for you, O Lord. And it's just the psalmist going back and forth. It's a pretty good one if you want to check that one out. I love Psalm 13 because it feels like sometimes, especially over the last year, we've asked the same question over and over again How long? How long? Is COVID going to continue to cause troubles? How long until the mask mandate isn't around anymore, right? How long? And that's what the psalmist says uh, in Psalm 13, too. And at the end, he comes back to the same thing, but I trust in your unfailing love that ultimately God is is in control. Any other psalms or other, other parts of Scripture that people want to share? All right, you can think about that. Share them with me sometime. That would be a great one. All right, here's the next one. This one's kind of heavy, so I think uh, we'll spend a little time on this, Um, but I think it's important because uh, statistics that I've read recently are that one in four, one in four women sometime in the course of their life will be sexually assaulted. It's crazy to think about, 25%, one in four. It's quite a bit lower for men, but there's still a sexual assault that happens to men, too, so here's the question What biblical advice or comfort can we give someone who has suffered a sexual assault? How do we help them overcome the guilt if they feel they put themselves in that situation? And then, should a Christian report a sexual assault or not? Okay, there's a lot there. So let's take those questions one at a time. Let's start with the first one because I think this is probably the one that, that we can get the most mileage out of for our own Christian lives. How how do you bring comfort? How do you help someone who has gone through something that is as life-altering as going through a sexual assault? Any thoughts about what you can say to someone who's gone through that? Okay, listen. uh, Yep, offer to pray for them. Those are good things here's some things I thought about and I, I think there's some specific things that, that you can do in a situation like that. And I would say uh, the, the very first thing that I would remind them of is that, uh, that, that they're loved. That they're loved. Because I can imagine, and I, it's an imagine, um, I can imagine that that is one of those things that can happen to someone in their life that makes them feel almost as unloved as they've ever felt. Lonely, by themselves, right? Um, but they're loved and this is where Natasha referring to Psalm 139 before is so great because Psalm 139 reminds us of how precious we are to God. I'll praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, right? That, that's, that's you. That's you before God. That's a sexual assault victim before God too. Still loved. Or the Apostle Paul says it this way in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought at a price. That's how precious every single person is to God. He was willing to give up a price, to pay a price for each one of us. And that price, as you know, was his own son. The blood of his own son that was shed on the cross for you and for me. Maybe John 3.16 is just a great way to remind someone that they're loved. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I think that's a great place to start because everybody needs to hear that, right? We're loved, we matter to Jesus. The second thing I thought about is to remind them that, that they're not alone. Because again, that, that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of being unloved, has to be a part of, of what you go through. Uh, and, I, and I jotted down just a couple of passages that I thought of as I thought about the fact that people are not alone. Psalm 9.9 says this, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Or this one from Psalm 147. uh, The Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I think of the story of Hagar. Not sure if you're completely familiar with the story of Hagar from the book of Genesis. It comes from Genesis chapter 16. Hagar was the maidservant of Abraham's wife, Sarah. You might remember that when God was Slow, according to Abraham and Sarah, and keeping his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son, Sarah wondered if maybe that son was meant to be born through another woman and not her. And so she encourages Abraham to spend the night with her maidservant, Hagar, and have a child through her. And Hagar becomes pregnant. Do you remember what happened next? There was instant tension between Hagar and Sarah because her maidservant was able to give Abraham the one thing that Sarah had been prevented from giving him. It got so bad, the Bible simply just says this, that Sarah mistreated Hagar to the point that she had to run away because she was being mistreated. And as I think about that, I I, I think about Hagar's place in all of this. You know, she, she was a servant, so she probably didn't have very much to say. So maybe Maybe Sarah's mistreatment of her wasn't necessarily physical. It certainly would have been emotional. But she was told to go spend the night with Abraham and then became pregnant with his child. Could, could anything be more demeaning than that? And then being rejected um, by the person that you were serving because you were now pregnant? And when she ran away, there's some really interesting things that happened because God stops her. And God tells her to go back. And God promises that he's not going to leave her and that he's going to bless her even through the son that she's going to have. Um, and, I, and I think it's just so amazing that God cared about Hagar too. She was not a part of, uh, with have, giving birth to Ishmael, she was not a part of the line of the Savior. She was not a part of what later happened through Abraham's son Isaac and all of his descendants. And yet God cared about her Uh, just as much as he cared about anybody else. And I think there's another way to just say you're not alone. God knows, God cares, God sees. I think the third thing that I would say to someone is it doesn't make you less valuable. It doesn't make you less valuable to God. Uh, It doesn't make you less valuable to someone else. Um, God still cares about you above all else. And then, I think I would encourage them to talk to someone. And if you're that person, great. If you're a person that can hear and listen and commiserate and cry with and hold and hug and give encouragement to someone who's gone through that, sometimes that's maybe all they need. But maybe there's more. And, and maybe suggesting talking to a counselor, talking to someone that can help them process all of the thoughts that they have, whether it's negative thoughts about themselves, about life in general, Um, those things take time and they take help to heal from. And so all of those things, I think, are are great things. And then what Art said, too, simply praying for them, understanding that they have people in their Christian community that care about them, uh, those are all really, really good things. It's sad to think about how many people suffer from those kind of things and and if we can be, as as a Christian community, a help for people who have gone through that, uh, we certainly want to be that. What about that second question, though? What about someone who says, what if it was at least in part my fault? And here's what I'm thinking. I don't know where the question necessarily was coming from, but maybe they thought, okay, well, I was at the party. Um, Maybe I had a little bit to drink too. Maybe I wasn't fully thinking of what was going to happen, but I didn't want what happened uh, to happen, but am I to blame? Is it partly my fault? What would you say to someone who said that? see, these are tough. I can see you all thinking. You're like, what do I say to someone? I, I don't know how much it changes. I mean, I think you still, I, I, you do have to finally tell someone when something happens to you against your will, it's, it isn't your fault. I mean, in the end, it, isn't, it is not your fault, right? Somebody did something to you that you didn't want to happen. You cannot take the blame for that yourself. I think there's a warning there, certainly, Right? Uh, There's a warning there to all of us to say, how do we keep ourselves in a situation where that might not happen to us? Maybe you have to use the buddy system, right? Maybe you have to make sure that there's somebody watching out for you and that you can watch out for somebody else. But those things can happen a lot more easily than, than we probably would care to admit. But in the end, that person is not responsible for what somebody else did against their will. And I think you have to assure them of that. Uh, that God certainly sees it that way too. And so that forgiveness is there. Uh, if, if there was some fault as far as being at a party, doing something that you wouldn't have normally done, uh, that's forgiven in the blood of Jesus too and to assure them of that fact. Any other thoughts there? What about the third part? Should a Christian report sexual assault? And I think the question was coming from the angle of what if it, ruins that other person's life? What if, you know, if, you know, I was at least, um, at, you know, I was in a position that I maybe shouldn't have been in, even though it wasn't my fault, do I want to report this and cause some trouble uh, for somebody else in their life? What do you think about that one? Does forgiveness mean that you can't look for justice? No, I think you all know that it doesn't, Right? There's nowhere in the Bible that says um, that, that Christians cannot get justice for something that's gone wrong. And I think about Deuteronomy when I think about this. Deuteronomy 22 particularly is about adultery and what would happen uh, if, if those sins were a part of the, the community of Israel. And do you know that, that one of the things that God did through his laws that he gave to Israel that guided them is he demonstrated how different Israel was from all the other nations around them. I know this isn't going to sound great, but it was the way it was at the time. Women were often looked at as the property of their husbands in Bible times. And what God's law proved is that women were just as valuable as men. And that made the Israelites stand out from from all other nations. And so when there was a sexual assault that happened in Israel, it wasn't the woman who was punished the man who committed the sexual assault. And in that way, God did something that no other nation around the Israelites ever did and that was elevate um, the status of women to being protected by, by the law that God had given. Uh, and, and so I, I think all of that is think, that's something that you can talk to somebody about. I know you don't want to ruin someone's life. That's not what you're set out to do. But I also think you know that if justice isn't done, there's no... St- No no saying that that won't happen to another person. And I think maybe Christian love says, I'm going to report this because I don't want another person to suffer the same thing that I did. And if a person gets away with a sexual assault once, maybe that makes them a little bit more bold to do it a second time. And I hate to put that on particularly young ladies because that's an awful lot of pressure to carry but if you think of others, too, then it's not just about you. You wouldn't be reporting it just because of you. Uh, and, and, and even then, you'd have the right to do that. And so, is there mercy? Is there grace? Is there forgiveness for sexual assault? Like every other sin, Jesus went to the cross for those two. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that justice can't be served. All right? Yeah, that was heavy. But it was a good question. All right. Here's the next one I got. How much time do we have? couple minutes yet. This question came via text and I think it's really good to clarify. So the question is about the Apostles' Creed and the chronological order of the Apostles' Creed. So in the Apostles' Creed, if you remember how the um, exaltation of Jesus went, so after we get done with the crucified, died, and was buried, then the next thing say he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From, them he will, from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so the question is, is that the right chronological order to put the descent into hell before the resurrection from the dead? And the answer to the question is, I don't think that was the intention of the Apostles' Creed, to put it in chronological order. Jesus certainly descended into hell before he appeared to anyone when he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, right? So sometime after Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, he came to life. He was made alive by the Spirit, Colossians chapter 2 says. And then he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That was a a reference to the descent into hell. So Jesus was alive when he descended into hell. So in effect, he had risen in the fact that he was alive again, before he had ever left the grave and appeared to people on Easter Sunday morning. But as the Apostle Cre- as Apostles' Creed is laying it out, the biblical events would say, well, people didn't see Jesus, so the third day he rose again from the dead. It doesn't mean that he wasn't alive before that. It just means that's when people witnessed his resurrection from the dead. Does that make sense? It's a clarification, I guess. All right, one last one and this is a good one also. The last question I got for tonight is simply this. What's the biblical stance on eschatology? Ooh, there's a big word. Eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for end times. What's going to happen at the end times, right? And so you might know, you maybe heard words like millennialism that, There is this idea that Jesus is going to come back and rule on earth for a thousand years uh, again. And there are false teachings that have come up about the end times really in, in lots of different circles and lots of different ways. But as the Bible lays it out and as we teach it, it simply is a single return of Jesus that is going to happen on the final day, judgment day. And on that day, John chapter 5 tells us all who are in their graves will come out. Some will rise to eternal life and others will rise to eternal condemnation. Um, but that, that's the, the end time events. Jesus is coming back. If you want to lay it out, what's going to happen on the last day, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a great place to go. There's going to be a loud trumpet blast, the, arc, the voice of the archangel, a command of God, and then Jesus will come from heaven when that happens and the dead will be raised, they will join together, the living will join together with the dead and meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever is the way the Apostle Paul lays it out in First Thessalonians. No rule of Jesus on earth, no second chance for people on earth, no rapture of Christians before that last day. Jesus is coming back once and he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead as the Apostle's Creed says. So that's a real quick eschatology in a nutshell. Uh, Last summer, we did a Zoom Bible study on the end times and we did it for eight weeks. So that's an eight-week crash course in like three minutes. Uh, But if you ever want uh, a copy of that Bible study, I'll be happy to to give it to you. That gives you more information about what's going to happen when, uh, as the end approaches or as we think about end times. All right, thank you everyone for great, great questions tonight and an opportunity to discuss some of those questions. We have one song left uh, to sing, uh, but I'd like to close our time together with prayer. Uh, Are there prayer requests that anybody has this evening? All right, let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. When we have questions, when we wonder about things, it is ultimately that truth and that truth alone that can provide us with the answers to those questions. And even though our questions aren't always directly answered in Scripture, we can find your truth, first of all, in the love that you have for us in Jesus and everything that he's done for us to make us your children and heirs of eternal life. And then we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom in the matters that that aren't laid out in your word, those matters of adiaphora, the things that you neither command or forbid, Help us to, first of all, seek to glorify you in all things and then to look out for one another as we protect one another on the way to an eternal life with you in heaven. We ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.